Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say, I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is The Redemption. This is an image from the early of early days of capturing the cross collection, back when the entire hillside was covered with grass, or some might say, hey, the landscape imparts the feeling of late summer afternoon. There's a sea of grass at its max of about three feet high, with the calming amber-yellow hue that you see in late summer. And there's a faint trail going around the left side of the cross. Why did I choose the name The Redemption for this image? Because the process of redemption is a mystery. To me, it's the mystery of faith. This phrase is common in some denominations. While the origin of the phrase is unknown, it means a lot to me, at least as faith relates to the mystery of redemption. The common biblical definition is someone being saved from a sinful state. In other words, having one's sins forgiven. One example often provided refers to someone locked up in what used to be referred to as a debtor's prison and then being redeemed or freed by having their debt paid by someone else. Jesus redeemed us by paying with the ultimate currency, his innocent life as a ransom for our sinful and irrevocably guilty souls. But what does faith have to do with what Jesus already accomplished. Well, John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Paul added, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 But then, how do we rectify this with what we already read in Hebrews 10.26? For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now that is a conundrum. And more than that, it jolts us into a paradox. Which is what? I have heard paradox defined as an apparent contradiction which speaks to a deeper truth and which takes us to deeper truths until we realize the essence of God is a mystery. A mystery that leads to acceptance and an acceptance that generates and solidifies faith. But we are, I fear, missing something regarding redemption. At least it seems that way from what I saw growing up, what I read in the Bible, and from what I hear from my time spent with God. 
You see, both my mom and dad were heroin addicts before and after I was born. My mom, who hit rock bottom after the state took me from her, reached out to God simply asking, If you are real, God, please change me. Today, God did, and she was, and my mother was a joy-filled woman of God ever since. My dad, who was in prison at the time, heard about this, and it sounded good to him. So he said the sinner's prayer, joined a group called the God Squad, and was released on good behavior early. But only a few years after his release, he said that same sinner's prayer hundreds, if not maybe thousands of times, throughout the rest of his life. And yet, he seemed trapped in a cycle of chemical addiction, drugs and alcohol, leading up to the day he passed away. The mystery I can't fully get my head around is why does one person say the sinner's prayer and never needs to say to say it or pray it again, and another is never really changed, no matter how many times the sinner's prayer is prayed. From my perspective, it could be boiled down to one equation. Redemption is a mixture of repentance and a personal reformation. And yet, there's a deeper mystery behind this equation, which is that regeneration is triggered by recognition. If forgiven, then that person will want to use the opportunity to live a different life than the one that brought them to ask for forgiveness. Yes? It reminds me of a poem by George Butterick, which says, If God were good, says the world, the sins of the earth would break his heart. To which the preacher answers, pointing to the cross, See his broken heart? Also read in the Bible, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. John ten fourteen and 15. There are many who believe that this is precisely why Jesus died way earlier than the Roman centurions expected him to. Because Jesus was not killed, but he gave his life away with a broken heart. Some believe the combination of having all the evil and vile sins placed within him, and thus his father, who cannot dwell with sin, abandoned him. This was simply too much for his pure heart to endure. This is the process that provides redemption. And redemption refers to the work of Christ on our behalf, in that he paid the debt, or from another perspective, ransomed us at the price of his own life securing our deliverance and redemption from the bondage and condemnation of sin. As an old hymn goes, He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. The New Testament speaks of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In this image called the redemption, the setting sun is breaking through the clearing storms. And it means that there is a daily opportunity with the passing of each day, with the passing of each sunset, to have our sins cleansed and to be redeemed today. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. For those of you who are new to the program, I did not set out to shoot a cross. I found this cross that is the focal point of the entire collection, a bit over a year after losing my wife to cancer. I was there holding her hand when she flatlined, and I tangibly felt 
God's hand take hers from mine. That experience afforded me a stoic peace in the midst of that storm. After the activities of the funeral and other related transition activities, I let the business fade away. I resolved to fulfill a day job and day job duties, but took my camera off the shelves each night, and I fell into a routine of chasing and soaking in every sunset I could. I felt like it was the closest I could get to heaven on this earth. In hindsight, I was striving to feel that spiritual feeling I felt when God took Verna's hand from mine. Some early church fathers in St. Benedict believed that and taught that it is biblical, the perception that humans have the ability to tap into infinity and eternity. And there were times at certain sunsets where I became lost in some sort of wrinkle and fabric of time and space. Words can't adequately explain what I felt and saw physically and spiritually, especially as it was personal for me, but suffice it to say it amplified my desire to find another sunset the next night and the night after and the next, hoping to feel that feeling again. I fell into a chasing sunsets phase of my life, and it was the mode of living and shooting that led me to discover a new hill to shoot from, and that is when I found the 12-foot-high white wooden cross. And then after several visits, I had flashes of ethereal tinge of eternity while at the cross. And that was when the die was cast. That sight became my secret place, my hiding place to spend time pondering my new life as a widower and communicating with God. And yes, at the same time, a way to fulfill my artistic obsession with shooting the same cross as many different ways as I could. Once in a while, the two merged, resulting in some of my most majestic images of the cross. Like many aspects of our lives that we, in hindsight, refer to as a God thing, meaning the cross collection was a natural evolution of my life at the time and a place that God drew me to, which means that God wanted me to create the collection over those two years without concern about how somebody might interpret the art, either to preach to them or worried about someone who would criticize. And when the school was completed, the school officials moved the cross, and I desired to share the collection, and I did so through a 20-piece, 8x10 gallery show. Then somebody very well connected who visited one of my shows asked me what I planned to do with the collection. I said to make a larger format gallery show, maybe 16x20s instead of 8x10s. And he said, no, listen, son, you have a book here. And he contacted the publishers on my behalf, and the book was published in spite of me. That is what I mean by a God thing, which is good because I can't really take credit and allows me much easier to say glory to God when I get praise for my art or for the book, both of which, to me, was willed by God to have come into existence. So if someone does critique or criticize my work as over-beautifying a symbol of one of the most violent, bloody, and agonizing way to be killed, I take peace knowing that God used me as a conduit to create something that can, even if non-verbally, effectively preach the good news of the redemption Jesus Christ offers. There's a quote, I believe it's from Ed Hinson, that states, The cross is beautiful and precious because it stands for the shame and scandal that Christ suffered for our salvation. This devotional today causes us to look, to really ponder what Jesus went through to redeem us and to become our Savior. 
A series of events, when viewed comprehensively, leads me to believe that Jesus died a death worse or more painful, more inhumane than 99.99999% of the human race. As we will come to understand in this devotional, my comment is not hyperbolic. Even if you do not believe in the divine nature of Jesus Christ, if you are honest, you will have to agree that the man known as Jesus died a death more horrific than most other humans. Sure, someone can pull up stories of a terrible death here or there, but if you find a reference that was at or worse than the death of Jesus, it is still a minuscule percent of the tens of billions that ever lived. With that premise, let's dig into it. The first thing that really jumped out to me was not the obviousness of how gruesome, violent, and disfiguring the process of a crucifixion was, but the cultural and societal shame it brought not only to the one being executed, but the widespread stigma to all his family and friends. Those known to be associated with the defendant were socially shunned, almost like dropping down a peg or two in that Hebrew version of a caste system ruled by the ruling priest class. But that new knowledge did not impact me as much as when they taught us how the crucified were perceived as being cursed by God. Wow, cursed? I have to take a step back for this epiphany. Actually, I'm struck by two seemingly hidden heavenly truths not considered by me before. In both directions, back to the Garden of Eden and forward to the rapture. So let's see if I got this. God had to curse and to break the right relationship with his beloved son to break the curse and restore the right relationship with mankind? Yes, and it is why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. God had to, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, break his right relationship with them, cursing them, toiling and sweating over the fields for man and the woman, Eve, there was to be pain of childbearing as well as enmity with the serpent. Then he exiled them from the Garden of Eden. But now, to reverse this status, God the Father had to curse and exile Jesus, who was sinless, innocent, and holy, giving Jesus up to the worst execution by the Romans that could be inflicted on someone. Some might say that all we will learn about this devotional episode today about the physical aspects of the torturous process of a crucifixion was nothing compared to the utter horror, agony, and anguish of having all the sins of man across the span of history and into the future, all the most vile, disgusting, foul, nasty, unpleasant, horrid, dreadful, abominable, offensive, odious, unsavory, repulsive, repelling, wicked, evil, heinous, diabolical, fiendish, vicious, murderous, barbaric, cruel, dark, rotten, nefarious, monstrous, spiteful, and hurtful actions ever committed was placed on and in Jesus. It is simply unimaginable. But it makes sense now in the light of this new paradigm. Maybe it was not just a cultural and societal belief that the crucified were cursed by God, but maybe it was an actual part of the actual plan. As I mentioned, the Bible tells us that God cannot dwell with sin. God is holy, and God cannot cohabitate with sin. So God had to decouple from his Son to allow all the sin of the world to dwell in Jesus. 
We know this to be the case when it is reported that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. So even those people who feel everyone, including God, maybe have abandoned them in their life, Jesus can say that he knows what it feels like because it actually happened to him. Jesus had the greatest abandonment, and more than any other human, because Jesus, the Son of God, was close to God the Father, and more than any human that ever lived from the beginning of creation, meaning the absolute anguish of being abandoned and then having the sin of the world place in him is not only unimaginable, it is uncomprehensible. This is why Isaac Watts, in one of his hymns at the cross, asks, Why? Why did his Savior have to die like this? My answer is that it was the price of redeeming us. Now, this method of capital punishment was reserved only for the worst type of criminal, and that, in the first century Hebrew culture, it was a stigma not only for condemned individual, but it was spread to the family, friends, and business associates, everyone who was a part of that person's life. The only comparable stigma I can think of in America might be treason, but of course, we have a different culture in our country. This perspective provides fresh insights as to why the religious leaders the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees would accept nothing less than a crucifixion. Pilate, then Herod, and Pilate again offered alternatives to crucifixion, and I've often wondered why the Jewish leaders would not be willing to negotiate this point with the governing force occupying their land. The religious leaders wanted the following, the disciples, the followers, shut down, meaning they, the disciples of Christ, had the ability to share the message of Christ, and therefore had to be eliminated. The leaders knew if that Jesus, their teacher, was stigmatized, then no one would want to be associated with them. It did not have to go to the full crucifix option. On a side note, if Israel were not occupied by the Romans during the life of Christ, then Jesus would not have been crucified, and he would not have been able to fulfill a prophecy, actually a number by several Old Testament prophets, as Caiaphas told Pilate, our law forbids capital punishment. When Pilate asked, why don't they just deal with Jesus their way? There was many ways they could have dealt with Jesus. But this was as much political as it was a commercial motivation. As the followers of Christ were growing, being baptized and forgiven, less people were needing the ruling priest class. Meaning, the people in that system would have to purchase a sacrifice from the priest, or from the nearby merchants, a lamb or a pair of doves. And of course, the need for that lessened. The priest not only made a lot of money in this system, but an endless supply of free food from the excess sacrifices. And the followers of Jesus just kept growing. The arrival of Jesus and what we call Palm Sunday, in which the Bible says the entire city turned out to cheer and praise Jesus. Entering Jerusalem was a final straw for the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. They not only wanted Jesus gone, but they wanted a stigma associated with Jesus, such that anyone following the teaching or theology of Jesus would also be stigmatized across society and their culture. Until I was working on this devotional, I had not thought of this aspect, of why the religious leaders would accept nothing less than a crucifixion and a political assassination of the character of Jesus. But King Solomon... And Ecclesiastes says that there is nothing new under the sun, which is why we may see 
ripples of that same tactic being used today. We also see in John 15, 18 to 20, that Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. All that considered, Paul, who used to carry out more than just the character assassination of Christians, when he was Saul, would literally kill them. He gives a heavenly perspective after his conversion. When we read in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, don't run from the tsunami stigma that the world assigns to you or to us, but duck dive right into it. It is all we have, and we should be proud that the thing that society uses to impugn us is the very essence of our faith. In our faith tradition, it represents how our divine entity, the Father God from before the creation of the world, as another part of the Trinity, lowered himself to the lowest of lows physically, spiritually, and culturally, and became the only legitimate sacrifice for the sins of mankind, and to redeem us. As we've focused on in previous devotionals, Jesus went even lower in the afterlife to the realm of Lucifer and emerging victorious with the keys of death, hell, and the grave. My point here is that this is the most torturously, horrifyingly, and violent way for a person to be killed. I know Christians who could not watch certain scenes leading up and through the crucifixion process portrayed in the Passion movie, The Passion of Christ. So allow me to keep the comments at high-level description found in the Gospel. As I do, I'll let your mind imagine how truly brutal each step was. First, we see disrespect and shame as the religious officials, in John's account, slaps him in the face during the questioning. We see a mix of violence and shame in that they stripped him naked and placed a scarlet robe and flogged him with a whip they had lead and metal braided into the tips. They took a rod and they took turns striking him in the head while spitting on him. The latter being a, considered a source of deep shame. Not just to be spit on, but to be spit on by a Gentile. Then they twisted a crown of thorns and forced it onto his scalp while mocking him as the king of the Jews. All of this leading up to Golgotha when they outstretched his wounded arms and drove a huge nail the size of a railroad track stake into the section of the wrist at the bottom of the arm and between the two bones, being careful not to puncture the main bloodline, lest he bleed out and short-circuit the crucifixion process, a process that normally took a long time to kill someone, a purposeful and diabolical way to kill someone as slowly as possible. Then they lifted Jesus into position, and the slow process of suffocation begins. As I mentioned, crucifixion is engineered to take a long time to die. It could take a day or two of ever-present pain as a slow reduction in the ability to actually breathe. So it's a long process of suffocation. At one point, because of the Passover, the soldiers are ordered to break the legs of the three being crucified. They do this to reduce the victim's ability to push up with their feet to take in air a, a bit more efficiently. But they found that Jesus was already dead. This confounded the soldiers as it was way before they expected. So they broke the legs of the two thieves. And just to be sure that Jesus was dead, they pierced his side. And it was reported that a mix of blood and water flowed out. But why? Why had Jesus died so early? As I mentioned 
Jesus allowed all the sins of mankind across the span of history, from the Cain killing Abel, and in the future to the Armageddon and rapture, he allowed all the worst of humanity into his perfect, innocent, and holy heart. Remember, the whole plan of salvation was for Jesus to live as one of us, to experience the plight, hunger, tiredness, pain, grief, and loss, and the temptations we face. And in the crucifixion, we see that it might be impossible for any one person to say that they had anything more painful happen to them than what Jesus experienced. Moreover, when Jesus took all the sin of the world, no one can say that Jesus would not or cannot know what they went through or are going through. And to those who feel abandoned, even by God, Jesus knows intimately that the absolute hopelessness of that happening, because it happened to him. So if you are still alive, then you have not been truly abandoned by God, even if it feels like that at times. And it means that there is nothing you have gone through or will go through that Jesus has not already gone through for you. And through all Jesus went through, which is the point of this devotional, is that Jesus kept a meaningful purpose and resolved demeanor to go through that much pain and agony and still have the cognitive and empathetic empathetic attention for the eternal souls of those involved in killing him. When he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If it wasn't that I knew that Jesus was also 100% divine to his 100% humanity, it would be simply unbelievable that a man in that situation would be so concerned with forgiving his executioners. This is the point of the redemption devotional today. Jesus did all of this to redeem us. As we just learned, it is a very high and painful price to pay to divert us from the path of hell we were all on. And Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Quote, but now says the Lord that created you and he that formed you, fear not. For now says the Lord that created you and he that formed you, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43, 1. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this redemption perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm of the cross. Why? Because it removes all possible fear, doubt, and insecurity. It allows you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst case result of any scenario is the best case outcome for us, God's children. Go live in that perspective today. If you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice made for you yet, then I suggest you contemplate what he did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible. Watch movies like The Passion of the Christ or The Chosen. Because if you do, I'm convinced that you will thank him for his sacrifice. Asking Jesus to forgive you of those sins that you placed on him and asking him to dwell inside the cleaned out and healed portion of your heart today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week here on Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, this week's essay, The Redemption, along with my other Verspirations, then check out Verspiration, singular, on Instagram. And if you'd like to learn about the Cross products, hear other Cross podcasts, or would like to donate to the ministry of what the cross means to me, then log on to robbyholt.com. That is R O B B Y H O L T.com. 